welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, James Prestwich and I catch up with the team working on Flashbots, a research and development organization formed to tackle the problems and risks posed by MEV, or minor extractable value. We revisit the topic of MEV, explore the Flashbots mandate, and check in on the state of their research. Now, before we start in, I have two quick notes. First, you may have noticed that this past week's ZK Sessions event was postponed. The event, which is focused on DeFi and privacy, was set to happen actually this past Monday. Long story short, basically a snowstorm in Texas was enough to knock out my ability to be the host of this event, as well as the ability of two out of the five speakers to actually attend. So amazing that an online event can actually be affected by weather, but turns out it's possible. Anyways, (laughs) happy to say this will now be happening this coming Monday. We've basically postponed it by a week. It's going to be happening on February 22nd. So actually, if you missed it the first time around, you still have a chance to grab a spot. Event is free. And we have fantastic sponsors, Ave and the Interchain Foundation, as well as a roster of experts to help us discover how DeFi and privacy intersect, interact, and potentially conflict in certain cases. We want to discover if DeFi is even possible with privacy, if it's valuable, and what we can do to bring this about. Now, secondly, I want to share a mating call from the scalability experts at Optimism PBC, our sponsors for this week's episode. For some context, Optimism PBC is the team building the Optimistic Ethereum network and the Optimistic Virtual Machine. They are champions of the Optimistic Rollup that we have mentioned a few times on the show. They are calling all curious hackers and seasoned engineers to come work on the cutting edge of the most interesting problems to push the limits of blockchains, VMs, and compilers. No blockchain experience is required as they believe that talented engineers can problem solve around any codebase. You'll be working alongside global teams that are defining completely novel businesses and games that need the optimistic software to scale. If you're a developer who loves to see your code being used by innovators around the world, then optimism is your gateway to paradise. So if you're interested in becoming part of this compassionate, hardworking team, do reach out to join at optimism.io. I'll add the link to that in the show notes. People of all backgrounds are encouraged to apply. So thank you once again, Optimism PBC. Now here is our episode with Phil and Stefan from Flashbots. So this week, James and I are catching up with the team who work on Flashbots. Flashbots is a research and development organization formed to tackle the problems and risks posed by minor extractable value, or MEV. We first dug into the MEV issue on this podcast with our episode with Dan Robinson last year. Um, I'll add the link in the show notes to that if you want to check that out as well. But first, I want to say welcome to Stefan and Phil. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Hello, hello. And hi, James. As mentioned, you are the guest co-host for the week. Hi, Anna. It's good to be here again. Very good. Phil, so you've already been on the show, um, and I'll add the link to that episode, but that was a long time ago. So I really, I kind of want to catch up with you. Like, what have you been up to? What's new? Yeah, I mean, uh, not much. I guess same, same stuff. I think last time we were talking about gas i don't even remember what the episode was on to be honest but i remember (laughs) i think it was gas token yeah i remember doing it i remember the room very vividly and you know the experience but i don't remember the content uh but i think it was about gas i'm pretty sure we talked a lot about gas because i remember i remember those discussions um yeah yeah that was actually that was devcon 4 i think right that was in prague yeah i think so yeah yeah um so yeah, I've just been working on more papers kind of in the same vein and continuing the same kind of research on fairness and uh, ordering, transaction ordering at the consensus layer of Ethereum uh, and kind of digging deeper into MEV, which is, I guess, the subject we're going to be talking about today. So that's been mainly my professional life uh, yeah, since then. But even back then, had you already published, actually, I mean, we would have recorded that in two, like end of 2018. Had you already published that first Flash Boys paper at that point? 
Yeah, so I think the the DevCon talk that we did on Flash Boys actually predated the the public release of the paper, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I think that would have been around the first time I was kind of talking about the work, but before the actual paper came out. If the timeline is is clear, I don't know. A lot of these things like always seem to happen around the same time uh, to me. So time is nonlinear and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that was the first time that you had sort of highlighted, I guess, for the community, this issue of, well, I'm going to call it the issue of MEV, but I guess that's not really the way you define this. Um, what was the original problem that you identified? Well, I think the original problem is that people were just building these dApps that weren't thinking about their impact on the consensus layer. And even in many cases, arguing that this was like a good thing uh, for consensus, which is still an open question. I think we can discuss this more. But I think I think there was kind of a blind faith in the community that you can build these kind of dApps like Uniswap and like Compound and Maker and all these other dApps that people use that expose these massive amounts of kind of valuable minor uh, attacks on the blockchain and that Ethereum would kind of keep working uh, in, in the in the base layer. So I kind of just wanted to call that assumption into question a little bit and get people to talk about it. And I think the reaction was was very strong and, and people kind of interpreted this in, in many different ways and had many different things to say from financial perspectives and economic perspectives and computer science perspectives. So that journey has kind of continued into the present day. But that was that was the early phase of it. I really enjoyed reading the paper because uh, the Ethereum community, like you said, had been very naive to these issues. Uh, some of these had been known in Bitcoin for a long time and had mitigations in Bitcoin Core. And you know, there were people like me who were aware of these and writing about them um, in the Ethereum community before the Flash Boys paper. Uh, but the Flash Boys paper like, really went out and showed that these were active, that they were happening and that they could have an effect on Ethereum. I do wonder, though, like at the time that you were writing this, like, was it actually a problem or was it just sort of like there was some activity? Because as I've understood it, like this is an issue that's become increasingly relevant, which I guess leads to the Flashbots project being developed. Is that the case or was it always this bad? That's a good question. I mean, I think the goal of research is to prevent surprises in kind of an engineering context. That's one of the many goals and one of the many roles of, of good research. So I think one of the things that I tried to do with that is kind of ask what people weren't looking at and what if kind of the course of the of the crypto community continued the way it was going, what would become a problem in several years and would kind of take people by surprise. So I think the problem was there. And in the paper, certainly we have blocks where the amount of MEV is so high that it would destabilize the incentives behind Ethereum consensus and could possibly have broken Ethereum in the past if miners were purely short-term rational. Uh, that being said, I think reality is like a lot more complicated and minor engineering and minor incentives is a very complicated landscape. So that didn't actually end up happening, but it doesn't mean that the threat wasn't there. Um, and it has continued to grow, but it was serious back then. And I think it continues to be serious. And uh, I think with time, it will only become more serious as we see more engineering and more value. Cool. Now, Stefan, this is the first time you're on the show, so I want to get to know you a little bit. Do you want to maybe just introduce yourself real quick? And I think what we want to hear for this particular episode is like, what got you interested in this project? At what point did you get involved? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'll give a quick preview of my experience. Um, my blockchain experience is very much so focused on Ethereum and actually uh a fun fact, uh, Phil's the one who taught me how to write my first bit of smart contracts back in uh, in summer 2017. I just happened to make my way to the IC3 bootcamp that they were having over at Cornell. Oh, cool. Um, and it was really my introduction to this whole world of of smart contracts that uh, that I had no no idea about before. And yeah, I haven't stopped writing smart contracts since then. So been picking up uh, as many interesting projects as I can along the way. Over the years, sort of saw the wave of, of MEV, uh, coming just by, uh, by proxy of having, uh, having that relationship with Phil. And I think it was in 2018, we, we actually wrote this, uh, this project called Lib Submarine, which was, uh, an attempt to provide a 
commit reveal scheme to mitigate some of the front running uh, that was happening on Ethereum. So it was a, yeah, sort of an early stage attempt at providing a mechanism for, uh, for protecting against MEV. Um, didn't pick up really. It was, it was much more of a a research effort and a a prototype, but uh, it was sort of enough to keep me interested in the space. And then over the course of this year with, uh, with the growth of, of DeFi, I think for many people, MEV became a, a reality. Just the sheer amount of, uh, value flowing on chain these days made it that, uh, it couldn't be ignored. Um, so yeah, linked up with Phil and, and the rest of the team and decided to see if there was something we could do about it. Cool. Now I gave a short definition of MEV just at the beginning of this episode, but I think for our listeners, it probably makes sense for us to like do a very concise definition of that term and what this issue actually is um, before we kind of dig a little deeper. So I don't know which of you want to take that question and run with it, but let's let's give that definition to our audience. Uh, so MEV is called minor extractable value. It's a little bit of a misnomer but it basically refers to the amount of uh, value that miners can extract from a blockchain. Uh, Miners kind of being these entities, oftentimes companies or people responsible for actually creating the blocks that go on this blockchain. Um, So how can miners extract value from a blockchain? Well, they can do things like change the order that transactions are included in, uh, in the blockchain by changing the order they put transactions into their blocks. They can censor certain transactions by just not including them into their blocks. And they can also add their own transactions in, just like anyone else on these permissionless networks can create a transaction. Um, So these three kind of sets of capabilities are very powerful. And they become particularly problematic when you try to do something like run financial applications on top of these cryptocurrency systems that use miners. So one example would be, let's say you have an exchange with an order book. It would be as if the New York Stock Exchange was an adversarial party who was looking Mm. at people's orders as they came in and kind of reordering them and inserting their own to try to make money off of people trading on their exchange. In the real world, that kind of manipulation is illegal. But in cryptocurrencies, these are the powers that we grant to miners. And when you have things like loan systems on a blockchain, exchanges on a blockchain, other kind of pools of money that are just sitting there in kind of permissionless ways that anyone can interact with, especially composed together when multiple pieces of of these kind of financial Legos interact, these minor abilities actually become very powerful and allow them to extract really huge sums of money. Uh, Why is this a problem? This is really a problem because it, it affects how miners play the blockchain game, how they create blocks. It incentivizes them to do things like ignore each other's blocks to try to claim large amounts of money that they can extract from these systems. And that leads to all sorts of terrible consequences. Mm. But it's it's interesting because when we had our conversation with Dan Robinson, like the focus was much more on the bots front running, not so much on the miners themselves. So what is the connection point there? Is it the same actors? Do you picture the miners being the bots? Yeah, that's a great question. And it gets into why I kind of almost regret naming the term minor extractable value, even though as a meme, it's taken off kind of very nicely. MEV sounds cool. It does. Yeah, it does. It has a certain ring to it. Um, And so the reason that we did call it that was because the miners in these networks kind of have the most power. If you have a permissionless financial system, anyone can come interact with it. Any bot can come use it or trade on it or whatever it might be. But ultimately, any transaction that interacts with this thing has to go through the miners. And because these miners can also play this game themselves, they can do anything those bots can do plus more. So if you're trying to come up with like a number for how insecure your system is, the miners are kind of the ultimate enemy because they have the most power. So if, if you're trying to argue that like this thing works, you really have to look at is it secure against the miners, uh, which is kind of why we put the focus on the miners at first. That being said, uh, we are as a Flashbots kind of organization, if you're interested and you don't like the term minor extractable value, I think this term is going to be tweaked uh, soon. So if you want to think of MEV as kind of meaning maximum extractable value as like Ah. the maximum value that any particular one entity can extract given uh, the ability to, to, to interact with the permissionless system, you can think of it that way too. That's also fine. Cool. So the miners have kind of the ultimate authority here, right? Uh, and the bots are paying transaction fees to the miner to get a chunk of that uh, reordering or insertion ability. Do you think that's a fair description? 
Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair description. So Flash Boys kind of describes the game that these bots play with the miners. And I'd say the main theoretical contribution of that paper is kind of formalizing the game theoretic dynamics of how these things work with the Ethereum peer-to-peer network. So it turns out the game they're actually playing depends on a lot of like low-level implementation details of the of the network, and that's what we describe in Flash Boys. But essentially what they're doing, yes, is like bribing miners to put their transactions first or bribing miners to put their transaction before mm-hmm. other bots or before users, uh, things yeah. like that. Uh, bribing miners to use those special ordering powers that they have. Exactly. Almost implicitly by just kind of paying a higher fee, but but it really is a, is a bribe, uh, economically speaking. So let's uh, move on to Flash Bots. This is the project that you're both involved in. What is it? Is it a company? What is this? Is it a group? Is it a, like, I, I want to say, I keep calling it a project, but maybe you have a better definition of what Flash Bots is. I think it is sort of difficult to define by virtue of the type of organization that we're trying to be. It is very much so embedded in the ethos of being an open source project that is trying to be as inclusive as possible. Behind the scenes, the structure of it is uh, to be incorporated as a company, but we sort of see ourselves as a research organization that's doing R&D work towards the fulfillment of the mission that we've, we've laid out. And this is what was really important for us when, when we came together. There's five of us uh, that are stewarding uh, this organization, and we've laid out uh, essentially a roadmap that elaborates uh, what we aim to achieve. And it sort of serves as our, our rule base for how we go about making decisions on a day-to-day basis. Um, I can maybe briefly introduce what that that mission is, um, but we talk about it more in our, our Medium article, uh, front running the MEV crisis. It essentially talks about how we see a potential future for Ethereum and any other blockchains where uh, this MEV reproduces a lot of the negative incentives that we see in the traditional financial market. Um, and we propose sort of a three-step approach to trying to mitigate that. The first one being to eliminate information asymmetry in the system, quote unquote, illuminate the dark forest. Mm -hmm. Um, The second one being to democratize uh, the extraction. So making sure that there's no privileged actor that has more power over another in the system to be able to access these opportunities. And then the final one is to distribute the benefits. So make sure that there's no dead weight loss on the system and it's not the users that end up bearing the the biggest share of the cost uh, of this extraction, but instead there's a redistribution in one way or another such that all the ecosystem participants uh, sort of come out with uh, uh, an even uh, outcome. You're trying to accelerate the development of MEV software in order to shape the outcome to be more democratic and uh, to favor more users rather than having gains privatized to a small number of people. Is that right? Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Is there any sort of equivalent to a research group like this or a project like this in academia or in any other fields that you're aware of? I think there's a lot of kind of various models people have experimented uh, with in terms of how academia and industry can collaborate. Um, One of the things we want to do is fund research in academia. So while Flashbots mostly works on very applied engineering questions that on a day-to-day basis, our engineering arm handles uh, related to MEV. We also have a research arm that aims to produce original research and academic quality research by taking some of this redistribution and using it on research. Um, And the reason we do that is because we believe that to accomplish these goals of eliminating information asymmetry, we need to understand where that asymmetry is going to come from long-term. And kind of the only ethical way to proceed in this space, if you are trying to to eliminate that asymmetry, is to take this long time horizon and invest in those fundamental sciences uh, that are going to answer questions like, how can we reduce MEV? Uh, How will MEV play out on the protocol layer? What sort of new attacks does MEV enable? And what kind of mechanisms can we use uh, to have MEV increase efficiency for users rather than decrease it? So those are all very deep questions that we're looking to fund on the research side of our organization. This is interesting for me, a little bit from the ZK perspective of like, it's sort of this these concepts that can be cross-network, they may or may not be fundable, they 
may or may not be tokenizable. And so you can't always follow the same paths that a lot of projects do uh, in order to get this research done. So anyway, I wanted to just dig in a little bit on that because maybe we can take some inspiration for our community too. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the things we're doing is experimenting. So I would love people to come join our discord. I think we'll have a whole shout out of how to contribute later. For sure. But we, we are trying to, in this phase, really figure out how we can create this new style of organization uh, and what flashbots will be. So a lot of these questions aren't actually set in stone yet. And if people want to come and answer these questions with us, we know what our mission is. We don't know how best to get there. That's still something we're we're figuring out and we're putting the pieces into place for. Mm-hmm. I was I was going to ask a little bit more about that is, uh, you know, Flashbots is a company uh, spending money on academic research and on high quality research in house gets expensive very quickly. How is Flashbots funded? Are there investors? Is there a plan for long term sustainability? Uh, do you expect Flashbots to be around to realize the long term vision here? Our goal is definitely to be sustainable, and we see this being a huge issue in our industry overall. The misalignment of incentive caused by various different fundraising models, as well as just the way that the industry moves so quickly, it doesn't necessarily yield to the most uh, long-term beneficial outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is very much so at the core of what, how we're trying to organize as an organization, as a research organization. Early on, we actually just started as uh, a Telegram group and had uh, just open source type of contributors. Um, and some of those contributors uh, came from uh, the Paradigm team. They, they have a great team of researchers uh, that they've onboarded. And, you know, they've been contributing code and, and they're intimately familiar with their system. Uh, over time, when it started to come to considerations around, okay, how do we scale up this research? How do we move beyond just this open source sort of amorphous team to something a bit more structured. There was no other, uh, no better uh, partner to to work with to to help us do that. Um, so Paradigm at the moment uh, provided some capital for us to be able to continue uh, growing our team, and uh, so far it's it's worked well for us to be able to bridge towards a, a more sustainable uh, model. That being said, I will say that. Flashbots is a very sensitive organization, and it it touches a lot of political uh, kind of hot points in the community, especially when it comes to the intersection with with funding models. So I think everyone who's involved in Flashbots understands really well that we would rather not do anything at all than to do something that's a negative for the space, um, including any kind of investor conversations that we've had and the support we've kind of received from Paradigm is with that understanding. So at least so far, we haven't raised uh, any equity rounds or anything like that. And and we've been very clear that we want to figure out a model that aligns the incentives of every single person in the community who uh, cares about MEV and aligns those incentives effectively. So we don't want things like outsized ownership or uh you know, uh, kind of preferred parties. And, uh, and if we can't get to that place, uh, with the vehicle that we're creating to accomplish these missions that we're talking about, then we won't be kind of continuing the organization. Uh, so that's very much what we're focusing on right now on the organizational side is how do we create that structure? And I think we have a lot of stuff that we're very excited to share, uh, coming up. That's still very Mm -hmm. early stages. Cool. (laughs) That's a really interesting, uh, it sounds like you're not comfortable with uh, targeting sustainability at the expense of the community or at the expense of incentive alignment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's natural to expect venture capitalists especially to want growth. That being said, I think we chose Paradigm because they have many investments in the ETH space already. And at this stage uh, of our precede kind of uh company formation, if this is going to be a company even, we we need to have this understanding that any kind of capital investment into Flashbots is really leveraging the research we're creating for every single other project in the space. Uh, so I think all of our partners understand that any contributions they make it may lead to sustainability. It may lead to growth. Uh, we're absolutely not seeking that at the expense of ethics or at the expense of uh, uh, incentives in the community. Um, I think a lot of projects are doing that, and and that's something we want to avoid at all costs. Mm. 
So you mentioned just now, you just mentioned that like part of the reason why Paradigm's involved is because they already have a lot of activity or they have a lot of investments on Ethereum. This is an issue that is that affects kind of smart contract blockchains. And Ethereum is the most used, I think, I think I could say this, it's the most used smart contract blockchain, right? Like Bitcoin's not a smart contract blockchain, right? I, I would agree with that. Uh, economically speaking, in terms of value, yeah, I think that's, uh, yes. Well, uh, you know, Dan Robinson over at Paradigm wrote a whole smart contract language for Bitcoin. Oh, no way. Back in the day. I think he has okay. some choice things to say about that experience, uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, he does. <laughs> so... All right, so so this is being built primarily looking at the Ethereum blockchain, but I'm wondering, like, is this research meant for all smart contract blockchains that are coming out? Is this only like is it is it so curated to the Ethereum structure that it couldn't necessarily be used by other groups? And to uh, kind of piggyback on that, we've been talking about minor extractable value. Does this generalize to staker extractable value and proof of stake? I think it's a great question, right? Like, uh, Ethereum is sort of a monster today in, in taking all the attention. Um, but there are a bunch of other, uh, blockchains out there that may uh, suffer the, the same fate. ETH2 is, mm. is one of those with staking coming down the line. Uh, there's some hopes that some of these issues might be resolved, but really a good way to think about it is, who holds the power to order transactions uh, within a block and what information do they have access to when they're doing this? When you shift from proof of work blockchain to proof of stake blockchain, you're shifting over from a miner to a block producer, but the, po the power uh, remains there. I would say what's been really interesting is we, despite focusing on Ethereum uh, as uh, an engineering project, uh, Flashbot's research is very much so looking at uh, all layers of the stack. Um, and so we've, I would say there's three categories of MEV mitigation that we've seen so far. Um, one of them is at the smart contract layer. So we would say it's uh, maybe application specific MEV mitigations, where you try to wrestle the power of ordering away from miners. Another one is at the node uh, level, which is what uh, Flashbots is doing with MEV geth by modifying the way that the, the transactions are being auctioned for ordering. And then uh, the third one, I would say, is at layer zero. So by modifying the way that the consensus of the blockchain is working to be able to delay in one way or another uh, the uh, revealing of the content of, uh, of the transactions of a block. Mm. Um, so all three layers are sort of active areas of research here. And I guess that that last one, that's where people who are actually designing the new blockchains could potentially be using some of that research in their designs. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. And also people who are retrofitting old blockchains to deal with MEV can also use them. I also think there's an interesting point about power dynamics. So if you look at proof of stake, who's going to have the power in that system? It's whoever has the most coins. And you're talking about right now actors like Coinbase, Binance, uh, you know, uh, mm. large exchanges, large holders, um, kind of large entities like this versus companies that are specifically set up and scoped to extract rent for a period of time, which is what mining operators most often are uh, structure-wise. So these entities, what are their incentives? We don't know. How do they interact with each other? We don't know. Um, I think it's very unlikely that they're just going to let user coins sit there and not participate in the system. And once they're participating in the system, I think it's very unlikely that they won't use the full range of powers available to them, just because in the long term, not using those powers is going to be very anti-competitive and they're going to lose out to other stakers. Wow. Uh, so how does Coinbase interact with MEV? I think that's a very concerning thing about proof of stake where where it could end up that it actually is a more serious issue uh, rather than a less serious issue. The idea there is that the exchanges that do extract value through MEV will provide better rates of returns to their customers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So as an exchange, you'll probably like if you can extract MEV and, and give some kickbacks to your customers, they'll probably move their coins around in the same way we've seen yield farming. We could easily see MEV farming with various exchanges kind of extracting at different levels and ignoring each other at different levels or whatever it might end up being. 
Um, so that's that's a world we don't want to be in, yeah, but uh, but it's a plausible awful. one. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of worlds we don't want to be in, you know, we've talked a lot about Flashbots as an accelerationist organization. We're producing code, we're producing research, we're making all of these things possible. Are you at all worried that somebody is going to take the things you produce and build a world you don't want to live in? Um, I have nightmares about it every night. Um, it, it is so scary uh, to think that, uh, you know, you build tools and you intend them to be for good and you try to design them to be for good, but they could be uh, misused. Um, I think what uh, gives me comfort is the fact that I don't see there being alter any alternatives. Um, and so if anything, this is an attempt at moving what is already a Nash equilibrium before it gets sort of ingrained to a different one. Um, and if it works great, if it fails and just accelerates us towards that same Nash equilibrium, we'll look like the bad guys, but you know, maybe we can still go to bed happy knowing that we tried something. So you're you're optimistic that you can get to a uh, happy future and you know kind of stay there, make the cost of leaving the happy future too high for anyone to build the bad one. That's the goal. Yeah, I will also say that I don't think I would have been involved in Flashbots or starting this organization if there weren't several other companies that have pretty much developed and released exactly the software that we're releasing, several of them in a closed source way. Um, so like this is not what we've released and developed so far and even our initial stages of the research roadmap is not like rocket science. Uh, it's kind of something that's already been happening in the industry. Um, mm. So we are moving the needle by kind of releasing code and making things easier and spreading the meme and just teaching more people how to do these things. But the the technical bones to do all this, it's uh, it's been accelerating since before Flashbots was created. And actually seeing it start to accelerate was the catalyst for us forming the organization and saying like, oh crap, this is going to happen with or without us. Maybe we want some say in kind of what this future looks like rather than letting the today's incentives kind of run away with themselves. What kind of projects were doing that? Like, do you have any like names of these projects? Do you mind mentioning them? Because I, I don't know who was already doing this or who's closed source doing this. I don't really want to want to call out <laughs> any companies that may or may not, you know, be close partners of ours right now. Oh. Uh, Okay. No, not 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 not. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. I'm like half kidding, but uh, but yeah. I mean, there are several projects. Um, I think concretely to name a few: uh, Blocks Route, Tai Chi Network. Um, I think uh, uh, Archer Dow is another one. So these three are are the main public efforts. Uh, there are several other mining pools we've talked to, and several other miners who are who have approached us as as interest either interested or committing engineering resources or at some stage down the R and D pipeline. Uh, so I think there's there's many different efforts to modify the ETH network to be more friendly to MEV and to kind of change the MEV landscape um, in many different ways. So there, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, kind of behind the scenes maneuvering going on right now. Yeah. I think I think there's been uh, behind the scenes maneuvering since really DeFi exploded. Mm. This effort with Flashbots very much so started uh, towards uh, August, and if you guys remember, that's around the time where I think you guys recorded your initial episode and you talked about the dark forest, yeah. and there was sort of this initial post about, "Hey, uh, you know, I got front run on chain. Like, what's going mm -hmm. on here?" Um, and then uh, after some time, there was a follow up post by by Sam Sun about escaping the dark forest. Um, Super interestingly, that sort of came uh, like a month in into our effort when we were talking with the mining pools and they were showing us what they were building. Um, we were able to use that initial infrastructure for uh, performing sort of a white hat uh, rescue. So there's definitely been the development of this infrastructure behind the scenes and sort of murmurs around it. Um, but it has sort of a, a double-edged sword. And, and I think people are very cautious about how developing this technology um, is perceived. Um, and so there's some neat things that you can do around uh, rescuing crypto kitties like we saw over the last week or uh, rescuing accounts that don't necessarily have uh, uh, any ETH in them. But uh, there is obviously some some more malicious and user harm type of things that can happen with MEV. Mm. 
So uh, you had mentioned, Stefan, a little bit earlier, the different levels that you were working on. And one of those was this implementation level, like actually creating the MEV geth. I was thinking we should talk a little bit about that because it was on an episode a few weeks ago with where James explained to me kind of how you're not changing Ethereum, there's no fork, and yet you are able to change how miners are interacting or how MEV is perceived. So let's talk a little bit about MEV Geth, what that actually is, and what it does. Sure, yeah, definitely. So one way to think about the way the mempool works right now is just a communication channel between uh, users of the network and miners, right? Where users of the network are requesting to be included uh, in the next block using two things, the gas price and the gas limit mm -hmm. on their transactions. Um, that's a very narrow communication channel for uh, users to be able to express what can become sort of a arbitrary complex set of requirements on where exactly they want to be placed with regards to other transaction, with regards to the current state of the chain. Um, and all those details are completely lost in, uh, in that communication. Um, so the idea behind modifying geth, what a patch that we call MEV geth is simply to introduce an alternative communication channel for users of Ethereum to be able to communicate more granularly where they want their, their transactions to be positioned within a block. So it provides this alternative channel that has a few additional properties than the mempool has. Mm -hmm. One of them is that the transactions are private. So the content of the transactions is never published to the rest of the network until they are mined in a block. The second one is that you can actually send an array of transactions. So you're not limited to a single transaction at a time. And you have some guarantees around uh, the execution of those transactions being atomic. And the final component of it is you are not limited to paying out the miner using gas price and gas limit. But you can actually use one of these transactions to do a direct transfer a value to the miner wow. as a way to make it conditional on certain state transitions on chain. I mean, from this, you can already see how like dApps in particular would be able to like interact with this kind of these changes. But I, I think I want to go into like what it exactly is because MEV geth, is it a, you sort of mentioned a patch, but is it kind of like a fork of geth, the normal geth client? So I think the best way to think about it is, is an upgrade or a patch. Okay. It's about 500 lines of code that you can paste into your, uh, your geth instance and you can start, uh, receiving and mining, uh, flashbots blocks. Okay. Um, so it doesn't modify, uh, the ability of the node to be able to communicate with the rest of the network. It simply provides, uh, an additional channel for, uh, receiving messages. Okay. Cool. But do the mi on the miner side, do they also have to have this running? Like, it's not like you as a user use the patch and then it works everywhere, right? Mm, th yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So this is definitely something that uh, only the miners need to do. Oh, I see. As okay. a regular node runner in the network, you don't need to uh, modify your node whatsoever. This This patch only applies to mining nodes. So we talked earlier about uh, miner bribery and how we're bribing the miners to exercise their ordering ability. Would you say that MEV Geth is the actual software that the miners uh, run in order to allow people to bribe them? I think any system that is able to pick uh, the execution of the transaction order could be seen as being uh, a way to communicate bribes. I think MEV Geth provides an alternative way for those messages and those requests to be passed along to the miners such that there's less negative externalities on the rest of the network. So for example, if I'm a bot and I'm using the regular mempool to try to bribe the miner for inclusion, there's a few common strategies out there. One of them is to keep uh, resending the same transactions with the same 
nonce to try to overwrite and outbid myself. That causes a lot of uh, spam on the network where now your peer-to-peer network is crowded with these bots that keep resending the same transactions. Um, likewise, there's a lot of these transactions that end up being mined in a block, but not successfully targeting the opportunity that they're looking for. And so you have these blocks that are filling up with transactions that are purely reverted um, and they don't produce any value. They're just taking up block space and, and wasting it. Um, so there's some mechanisms or auction systems that uh, are more efficient at producing uh, sort of the most desirable outcome for everyone in the network which is less chain spam, less network spam, and more fees for the miners uh, and uh, less risk for uh, both parties involved. Hmm. So right now, these bots are kind of making the entire chain ecosystem pay for what they're doing partially. Uh, They're spamming the network, they're filling up blocks with reverted transactions, and MEVGeth is a way that they can negotiate these deals with miners without having negative impacts on everyone else. Yeah, I think we're we're getting the worst of both worlds, which is economic centralization and information asymmetry and the externalities of like the networks and the channels that are being used are every single node on Ethereum and every single person who wants to run a node or study the network or write a DAP or whatever it might be. Uh, they're making it more expensive for, for everyone. So countering these negative ex- externalities is definitely what we're trying to do. Um, and to go back to the bribery question, I think... Basically, any fee payment infrastructure on any cryptocurrency is also uh, a bribery infrastructure. And I think it's okay to normalize that word from my perspective. Like, uh, I think this is controversial, but the authors of, for example, EIP 1559, which is a proposed change to how Ethereum charges transaction fees, uh, they called any amount that you would pay over the minimum fee to get included a bribe because there's no reason you would pay over the minimum except to try to get in sooner. And paying mm-hmm. to get in sooner basically is a bribe of like, here, take mine, no, take mine. Uh, it is also an auction. It is all these things. So uh, I think we use these words interchangeably. And I think for some newcomers, especially from the traditional financial system, they might hear the word bribe and be like, oh my God, what is this? But when you're talking about <laughs> systems that are intended to run in adversarial settings and intended to have actors running them who don't have legal relationships, who don't have uh, kind of external cooperation, who don't have any police force that can hold them accountable, um, I think it it is an appropriate way to view kind of what is going on. Hmm. Yeah, we're using the word bribe, but it shouldn't be seen as a negative word in these contexts. It is just a description of what is happening and is a natural part of the system. Yeah, some some people would call it also a tip. I've heard used uh, a fee, I guess, but... I think really these are all the same thing. It's it's like the rent you're paying the miner to use their right to include your transaction. I had a question about like this Geth patch though. Like, do you have any relationship with the Geth team? Are they aware of the work you're doing? Are they going to incorporate the work that you're doing? Like, I actually don't entirely understand how those two things work together. Yeah, so we don't have any sort of formal relationship. We've definitely been in communications with members of uh, various different development teams. Uh, so Geth, Open Ethereum being some of them. Um, they're, I think, aware of what we're doing and, and they've definitely been useful in answering some of our questions. Our hopes is that, you know, we, we mentioned what are the benefits that we can bring to the community. Our hopes is that we can actually start to improve the way in which the development of these uh, layer one nodes are being uh, funded and, and developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hope that over time, a lot of the work that we produce is going to be able to be merged back into uh, the upstream clients uh, because uh, we think it would be to the benefit of everyone. MEV get. It sounds like this is out running in the wild today. Um, how can I, you know, interact with it as a user, as a developer, as an engineer? How can I like go out and use MEV get to order transactions today? Sure. Yeah. So we release the initial specification. Uh, I think end of November and sort of just published it as, as open source code. What we saw is it initially started getting adopted towards the end of December to the point where we mined our first uh, block on mainnet, I think a couple days before the new year. Um, so at this point, we've been uh, live on Ethereum mainnet for uh, just over a month. Um, okay. And what we've seen is gradually over time, there's been more and more interest on, on both sides of the system. So miners are slowly coming online to uh, to run 
this this uh, MEV geth system um and we've seen sort of a, a, a gradual increase in uh the amount of hash rate that is uh that is powered by it and then on the flip side we've also seen more and more bot operators uh switch over their systems from running on uh, the mempool to uh, also routing their uh their transactions through uh through flashbots so you asked about, you know, how do each of the sort of ecosystem members keep track of what's going on here? Um, I think what's the most interesting for the average Ethereum user is to take a look at our transparency reports where we publish a lot of the data on what's going on on chain. And uh, we're coming out with a dashboard very soon that's going to be able to sort of live show the state of, of MEV. Um, and the goal here is really to help them get more educated, but there isn't necessarily any particular action that they can take. For bot operators and miners, then, you know, take a look at our GitHub and, and, and see the content that we've published there on how to, to join the network. Cool. Um, and before we move on from talking about MEV Geth, um, can you very quickly, uh, take a well-known DAP, maybe Uniswap and talk about an example of using it for good and using it for evil? Sure. So in the context of Uniswap, I think that's a perfect DAP to highlight uh, kind of how MEV can go both well and poorly for users. So the way Uniswap works is basically it's a contract that has two pots of money in two different tokens. Um, and users can kind of exchange from one pot of money into another by kind of sending tokens into the pot that they want to get rid of. Um, and the contract will make sure that the ratio of tokens in the two pots kind of stays the same value-wise over time, right? So like if you send $5 to the ETH pot, you've now unbalanced this ratio. So you have to get $5 worth of the other pot sent back to you to make this balanced again. Um, and, and the contract logic is kind of responsible for doing this automatically of keeping these pots balanced. And the nice thing about that is that users can trade at any time. You can kind of just come and send money into whatever currency you want without needing someone to trade with because this contract is always holding the other asset for you. So how can MEV go both well and poorly? Well, one example is if a user wants to come along and make a huge trade. Let's say they want to, to buy a million dollars worth of uh, Ethereum at the market rate. One thing a bot operator can do is it can do what's called sandwiching the user, where it can put its transactions around this user's transactions, say buy the ETH first before the user gets a chance to, mm -hmm. then process the user's transaction, um, and then kind of sell the ETH at this higher price the user has now created by changing the ratio in these pots. And that's kind of a, an example of a classic market pattern that's known as as basically front-running uh, in, in classical exchanges. But it's kind of unique in a blockchain setting because the miners have a very special ability to do this and almost unlimited power to do this with guaranteed profit. Now, how can, how can MEV actually go well for the users here? Well, let's say this user knows that the miner is in this position and they anyway want to pay the miner for their services. They could come to an agreed upon price with the miner before they process their transaction of how much they want to, let's say, tip, bribe, whatever, pay in fee to the miner to execute their transaction. And uh, assuming they that there is a network for them to do this and to enforce this relationship, they can then have their transaction mined without other bots or other people on the network kind of being able to, to do this sandwiching thing to them. Uh, today on Ethereum, this kind of transaction would be sent in the public network. So any bot that's listening to the public network would be able to try to do this sandwiching as well as any miner involved in mining the transaction. Mm. So having a separate negotiation for that may in some cases be better than the status quo. You're saying that uh, someone is going to try to front run your trade. If it's on the public network, anyone has access to it. If it's on the private network with MEV Geth, you can negotiate directly with the miner to avoid that. Exactly. The miner will always have the technical ability to trade before you if they want to, because they can just put their transaction first in that block. That's the way cryptocurrencies work today. So they can do some definition of front running you. But you could maybe have a more specific marketplace where you knew exactly what the miner would see about your order, you knew when they would see it, and you had much more specific guarantees about the information flow of your transaction than just broadcasting it to a public message board and hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. So MEV Geth and these kind of uh, direct bargains with miners can give users protections that are unavailable on the main network. Exactly, yes. If they just broadcast their transaction. Yeah, and uh, I think I think our efforts to 
kind of deal with MEV go even past what happens on the live network. So we're also developing tools for dApps to do things like reduce the amount of MEV or understand the amount of MEV in their dApps. Uh, we're releasing dashboards that are going to educate people um, on what MEV is out there and how it's being extracted. So I think it's going to take more than just correcting the incentives on this one part of the stack. But I still think having this one layer can let you do many powerful things that dApps don't have the ability to do today. One of my questions around this entire topic is like, what does it actually do? I think I think we've talked about what it does sort of on the granular level, like what it enables. But why is is it only good because people don't get front run? Or is there any other kind of like global network effect that could be seen as a benefit of using these kinds of systems? We predict that there's going to be sort of a wide range of impacts of of uh, the type of system that Flashbox is developing. Some of them are are more targeted towards the users, so we expect there to be less spam on chain. Uh, we ultimately expect that it'll actually reduce the price of that the users pay for uh, for getting their transactions included. We also expect there to be uh, sort of a more efficient. Uh, ecosystem that develops around uh, the extraction of MEV, where uh, because of this fair marketplace, um, it's no longer about uh, who can have the best, you know, off-chain deal with miners to be able to access the hash hash rate, but instead there's sort of this pure competition for who's able to uh, be the most efficient at finding opportunities on-chain and uh, extract the MEV that it exposes. Um, at the same time, we expect that there's that's going to um, increase the amount of interest that there is in developing systems that are protecting against uh, MEV extraction, and specifically the type of MEV extraction that is harmful to users. So this is a distinction that we're working on 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 putting together and and. Uh, as a part of our taxonomy of MEV, try and define what is good kinds of MEVs and bad kinds of MEVs. Um, I think you guys debated this on, on your previous, previous podcasts and, and is a very difficult line to draw. Uh, but there's sort of some things that feel better than other. Um, and the open question is how do we maximize the ones that feel good and the one minimize the ones that feel bad? Um, so I'd say these are all qu- open questions, but they're the direction in which we expect the impact uh, of our work to go. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting, maybe this throws it back uh, a little bit to what is good versus bad MEV in protocols. Like a lot of these protocols actually do need MEV to function. It's not like we can just eliminate MEV and we'll get to an MEV free world. Like the only reason Uniswap works for its users is because our bots come and our prices back to market. And that's where the liquidity comes from that people are trading against. And that is MEV, like directly MEV. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think understanding MEV is critical for these protocols. And that's one of the second order impacts we hope to have, other than the direct impacts of kind of increasing efficiency and reducing spam um, and other kind of commons benefits. I'm I'm really interested in Phil's point. It sounds like, you know, there's good MEV, like bringing Uniswaps back in line, but it's also impossible to express Uniswap without some amount of MEV. Without, uh, you know, the uh, you, you can't build a automated market maker that anyone can interact with without this feature. Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, and I think people want MEV. Like one of the first things that I told Uniswap when they came to me in like 2017 or something, and they're like, or I don't know, I, I read about them on the on the ETH forum. I don't remember how I originally got in contact with Hayden, but we were talking about the design and I was like, this is terrible. I hate this. Uh, it's like exposing way too much MEV. Like it's going to screw with chain incentives if it becomes popular. It's not a good trading UX for users. Uh, they're going to get kind of exploited and front run by all these bots, blah, blah, blah. Uh, wouldn't it be so much better if we just added this batch-based system, kind of like LibSubmarine, which is what Stefan was talking about working on earlier, where you kind of secretly commit to what trade you want to do and you reveal it a little bit later so that miners lose a little bit of ability to manipulate the order because you have to have previously committed to any trade that becomes executed. So you need kind of two miners over time to collude to manipulate you rather than just one. Uh, And every miner on the network maybe has to participate in this for it to be successful. 
So that's really a system that I thought would be would be more efficient from an economic standpoint because it wouldn't have this minor ability to exploit users in this direct way. Uh, but what it also loses is this ability to instantly perform a swap from any token into any token uh, mm-hmm. in real time. You may not even know when you make the transaction which token you want to swap into which token. It might depend on other things that are going on on the network. It might depend on other kind of DeFi contracts, other components that you're composing with. So this this ability to instantly swap tokens is both very powerful UX and is exactly the UX people want and the reason that this project took off and the reason it became popular. Um, And it's also in many ways the bad MEV that allows people to get sandwiched and leads to a bunch of bad UX that you can read about Uniswap traders having on the network today. Uh, So it's a double-edged sword. It's both powerful but also painful at the same time. And finding that balance is really difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one of the interesting takeaways here is that uh, MEV and shared state that we want out of the composable DeFi experience are intimately connected. It is likely impossible to completely eliminate MEV, and uh, it's almost certainly undesirable to completely eliminate it. Even though we tend to talk about it in this context of like the issue of. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we use all these negative sounding words like bribe and front running and extraction. No, there is a lot of positive stuff. And, and if you go on my Twitter and see kind of the latest talks I've been giving on DeFi stuff, there's a lot about this that I'm going to be releasing uh, with a bunch of co-authors very soon. But I think you can almost view the security of these financial instruments and the value they hold and how they compose in terms of, of MEV. Uh, and like you said, it's almost inevitable. Like, like imagine you just have an exchange, right? And then I place a billion dollar bet on the outcome of this exchange in the next six months, uh, like an options contract. Then the kind of composition of those, the options contract now affects the security of the exchange in an MEV sense. Um, so I think MEV is like a very deep way to reason about different financial instruments working together and how the value works when these things actually connect. Um, and I hope there will be more about that soon. Yeah. And uh, quantifying the effects they have on each other and on the underlying chain running them. Exactly. So in the last two days, there was this yearn, I'm going to call it an arbitra attack, I don't know if you would call it a hack. I don't know. But anyway, uh, a lot of money was lost or like gained by an attacker based on a flash loan. And I just wondered, and maybe there's no connection here, but I was wondering, like, how does a flash loan and MEV interact with one another? Does it matter? Because when you talk about like the one block, the one transaction, like can people front run the flash loans as well? Is that happening? Is it good? Or is this completely like different universes and are not and are not connected? No, there's there's definitely a very deep, intimate connection there. And uh, it's very explored fully in the in the talks on my Twitter I just mentioned and the, the paper okay. that I'm about to release. Fantastic. But I will let me let me briefly kind of cover it here. Uh, the basic idea is that when you're talking about MEV, you can't just ask, like, what is the MEV of an exchange or a contract in general? Because the MEV of that contract or that exchange or that DAP or that program or whatever will depend on things like what is the current state of the world? Like who has what money in the world? What money is in the system? Things like that. Um, and also what are people trying to do with the system right now? So like what transactions can the miner actually access and reorder um, on the system that are that are going on in real time? So what is the state? What's happened in the past? And what is happening now? Both affect how much money a miner can extract. Uh, so imagine like a Uniswap contract with $0 in it. Obviously, there's no MEV there. There's nothing to extract. If you mm-hmm. put a billion dollars in that contract, that's you're changing the state and suddenly the MEV skyrockets. Same contract, same code, different uh, state, different world. So basically, flash loans change the state of the world. Yeah. So where you have contracts that might not have had MEV in a certain state, um, you now add flash loans and in that same state, because maybe before in that state, the miner didn't have enough capital to pull off certain governance attacks. That might be a very common restriction on states. So you say this contract has no MEV, like let's say MakerDAO, in any state where the miner has less than a trillion dollars, right? And you might say that that is secure. That means that with regards to MEV, this contract is secure because no miner is ever going to have a trillion dollars. That's ridiculous. Um, but when you have this kind of mechanism for miners to trustlessly access pools of capital, that assumption and those states become much more realistic. 
So what you're doing is is like kind of changing the world in a way that yes does change the uh, the MEV of the situation by just changing who has access to what capital, which is a very deep part of what MEV is is in the system. The thing is with the flash loan, it's literally one transaction. So then does it also just like take it away right after? There's MEV for one transaction. You have to catch it in a way. It gets extracted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. As uh, yeah, I mean uh, exactly. It just it just opens the extraction possibilities by like letting you play with some money for only one transaction. Um, and if you could could extract it with all that money, then go for it. You have the transaction to try to extract it, and if you do well, you can repay the loan. It, it just lowers kind of the capital requirements. It doesn't introduce any new attacks, but it makes it a lot easier to do the ones that are already there. Oh, cool. Or I don't know if cool is the right word. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we we talked a little bit just now about you know the flash loan is changing the state on chain, which changes the MEV calculation. Uh, does changing off chain state also change the MEV calculation? Um, for example, if uh, ETH spikes on Coinbase, is this going to affect MEV? That's a great question. Um, so, in our current definitions of MEV, uh, we do measure in terms of ETH. So technically speaking, for at least my current on-paper definition of MEV, no, but you can change that. You can tweak the definition to use whatever value formula you want as like a function of the state, basically. So like uh, if your value function is just like, look at how much ETH the miner has, and that's the MEV, um, then no. Right. But if you if you say like add up all the tokens and there's some way for the miner to say, swap ETH for USDC at market price based on the transactions it's seeing that are affected by this off-chain uh, state of the world, then mm. then in that world, yes. Um, so I think like, like kind of, but uh, it depends how you want to scope your definition because you kind of have to draw the line somewhere. And it also depends on, you know, whether there are any on-chain actors that are making decisions based on that market price via an Oracle or something like that. Exactly. So I think Oracle extractable value uh, is a term I've heard before as a subset of MEV that relates to Oracle updates. Mm -hmm. Like the um, compound liquidations that happened a few months ago. Yeah. And uh, I know Maker has has had various uh, flirtations with Oracle extractable value when their Oracles have stopped working in the past and things like that. So I was thinking we could kind of close out a little bit to in learning about your roadmap, where you're at, What's missing maybe still? And I do want to touch on the topic of privacy or at least privacy primitives, because I know that that's somewhere in your roadmap. But let's start off with where we're at now. So as you mentioned, there is a kind of proof of concept. There's there's a there's a patch. It exists. It's usable. Uh, what are the like, is that is it in its final state? Will there be changes to it? What do you think is kind of still missing uh, on that? So I think. In many ways, MEV is the most exciting thing that's happening right now because there's so many unsolved questions for it. Um, and the state of our implementation of MEV Geth is not going to be the final one. There's so many things that we want to do to improve it, uh, both from the user experience of uh, searchers who are operating on it, all the way to the core mechanism by which uh, the preferences of those searchers is being explored. So. Two particularly sticky points that are at the core of our research and, and are actually the reason why we are calling the system an alpha release right now um, are privacy and uh, spam resistance. Um, so uh, on the network right now, right, if you just send the transaction through, the peer-to-peer -peer network provides uh, sort of the spam resistance that you need uh, to make sure that the minor node at the other end of the uh, system doesn't get overloaded with a bunch of requests. Um, in an MEV type of way where you want the transactions to be shielded, right? you don't want the content of the transaction to be revealed before they uh, reach the chain, you need to have a new way to be able to propagate those uh, messages. So doing that in a decentralized fashion that has both privacy and spam resistance is currently an unsolved problem that we're actively looking at. So you want enough uh, privacy that the miner doesn't know necessarily who sent this or what it's doing, but enough uh, transparency that someone can't just spam the network and uh, denial of service everyone. Exactly. And which which kind of like primitives are you looking at? What kind of privacy tech do you think could actually do that? 
Oh, I mean, I think that's a that's a very hard open question. And uh, we have, I guess, on our YouTube video, a recent what we call a roast, which is we have these kind of community sessions where we'll we'll put out these half baked ideas and people kind of come tear them down <laughs> and contribute and, and share their experience. Um, and one of our recent roasts, which is on our YouTube channel, was about this subject of like, what technology can we use to get privacy? Uh, the need for privacy is really clear. I think one of the things Flashbots wants to do at its very core is build this private kind of auction, uh, payment, uh, bribery, whatever you want to call it, infrastructure. Because the public one where everyone can see every transaction is just not efficient. And I think economically, by adding this layer of privacy where the two parties are separated uh, by this barrier of who can see what information, you can build much more efficient economic mechanisms. And you don't fall into things like uh, miners being lobbied to like route messages to certain participants before others and all these weird economic pitfalls that happen when you're dealing with open networks or trust-based networks. Um, so what we really want is, economically speaking, we want this private channel. Um, so we know that. Technologically speaking, there are many ways to achieve this in theory. So like in the crypto theory world, if you have this perfect multi-party computation system, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's one crypto primitive that exists out there. Maybe you've heard it. It's called MPC also. It could accomplish this. Um, if you have maybe uh, threshold encryption of a trust trusted kind of committee um, of people who are trusted to keep things secret. You could maybe use that plus uh, economic incentives to also build a similar system. Um, another straw man proposal we've looked at is trusted hardware and uh, Intel SGX and other alternatives. There are designs which use systems like that without integrating them into kind of the core of the network where they'll be used for anything but spam resistance on this one channel uh, and while allowing them to kind of degrade gracefully if they're attacked you probably can use that to also provide some version of this. Um, mm. It's worth noting we're not the only project looking at these things. So what, what basically needs to happen is a contract between miners and bots that is has some privacy and is also executed in a trustworthy way. So what you really need is a smart contract with some privacy. I think there's a lot of open research questions around what what is the best way and what exactly are the requirements in terms of like latency, trust requirements, uh, deployment requirements, and things like that um, that are best covered probably in our in our roast video. But we're highly interested in alternatives, and if anyone's interested in researching that, please reach out for sure. So I'm really glad you mentioned the MEV roast. I was going to ask you about that anyways. And now I definitely will will add a link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. This is an ongoing. This sort of series, right? You're doing this every two weeks or so? Yeah, approximately every two weeks. Uh, and we also have a, a number of events. So like you said, we do have a public calendar because we do aim to be a community organization. Uh, so please do check out that link and please subscribe to it so you can know when we have things like roasts uh, or other research workshops um, or things like conferences that we're planning to have in the future. Uh, so yeah, definitely please subscribe to that public calendar. Very cool. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and answering all of our questions about uh, flashbots and MEV, the sort of state of the research and some of the work that you have planned. Is there any last message you want to share with the audience? Or I think we're, we're going to send a lot of we're going to put a lot of links in the show notes for them to follow. I don't know. I guess I want to say that with the recent, especially with the recent GameStop uh, kind of debacle and stocks turning into memes. Um, I think we have a real opportunity here to build something different from the current financial system and better than what's going on on Wall Street uh, in a way that works better for users, that's more fair, and that's more transparent. Uh, there are also futures where MEV ends up being the opposite and ends up just reinforcing all the payment for order flow uh, and information asymmetries and systematic rent extractions we've seen in that world. Uh, and it's very much my hope that we live in the former universe where MEV becomes a force for good. And if you're listening uh, and if you're participating in the ecosystem, if you develop a DAP or whatever you might do, we can definitely use your help in making sure that that's the equilibrium we reach. So please definitely reach out and uh, participate in the conversation. Very cool. All right. So thank you so much, Phil and Stefan, for joining. Thanks so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, James, for co-hosting. Always a pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>